Welcome to episode 227 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 24th of April 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Second of what might turn out to be three episodes, so let's get straight on with it. The Free Software Foundation is dying. This is according to a post by Drew DeVault, and he makes some bloody good points, I think. He comes straight out the starting blocks with it's time for Richard Stallman to go. And it's hard to disagree with that, really. We've, we've talked about this situation a number of times over the years. And yet here we are still in the exact same position. What's that phrase? The best time for Stallman to go was five years ago. The second best time is tomorrow or today. <laughs> I mean, yeah, clearly that has to happen. But he lays out quite a number of good points and good suggestions for how the FSF could become relevant again. And that's what I like about this post. It's not just moaning about the FSF being shit or Stallman being weird or all the rest of that. It is pointing out the problems and suggesting some constructive solutions to those problems, like reform the institution, decouple GNU from the FSF, develop new copyleft licenses, because basically no one is using copyleft licenses anymore for new stuff because the GPL family is somewhat outdated to a lot of people. Phelan, you would probably disagree, but... Correct. For most people, it doesn't do the job. I think that's perhaps the most powerful idea here, is to develop new licenses which are more, uh, I don't know, more in keeping with the way that things have developed. Now, I absolutely see the problem with this, in that uh, if you give an inch, then they'll take a mile. And I'm sure Phelim is thinking exactly the same thing. Correct. But things just aren't really moving forward. People are actively avoiding the GPL today. And in order for the open source community to continue to flourish, I think really is time to make these difficult decisions, have these conversations, and, and try and come up with something a bit more modern. I don't doubt the fact that permissive licenses have become popular, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the right way to go. I think the main issue is the fact that the organization is too attached to that license. And it's seen as the one thing like, oh, I don't like the GPL because I don't like the FSF. And that is not a great thing. And that is probably to do with that split between GNU and FSF that should happen. If you see anything that comes from FSF Europe, it seems reasonable. And they seem like a lot more switched on and less sort of I don't know what the term I'd use is. The FSF don't give themselves good PR even just by mentioning them by name. It's enough to put anybody, even me, off. Like, I don't I don't really like what the SFF themselves strictly do. I can see where they're coming from, but I think they do a ham-fisted job of doing it. I think they should look more at what FSF Europe is actually doing because they seem to be reasonable folk who talk back and forth and don't sort of shy away from, oh, I'm not going to talk to you unless you talk to me on... IRC or something stupid like that. And they're just generally a bit less problematic. Yeah. You don't have to include the world philia when you're describing them uh, for various things that they do. Or phobia, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I do agree. I agree with the general sentiment as well. It's a pity because we've always willed the FSF to perhaps be more pragmatic for decades. And Stallman in particular was zealous about his commitment to the original terms. And of course, none of us could engage with him on those terms. And I think the end result is that the FSF could have been a much bigger influence on how open source software has been deployed and used and taken a share of its success in a way that could have influenced it for the better. And it's a missed opportunity. 
I really like Drew's idea of reforming it, like you say, Joe, because my first feelings are that it's kind of irrelevant and we should move on, but it's still an important concept and those ideals could be preserved in something, taking the FSF forward. You see, I'm not the kind of person who believes in just destroy the system. I'm much more of a let's try and fix the system person, which might be naive and might be uh, reflective of my position within various systems. But nevertheless, it seems like the way to go to me is try and fix the FSF, fix the problems. And the problems just all come back to Stallman. It comes back to his ego and that the FSF is just a massive extension of his ego, as far as I can see. This idea of refusing to even talk about open source because that's somehow not the same as free software. And Drew's very careful to make the distinction between free software and open source. But ultimately, we tend to talk about FOSS, and maybe they could do that more often rather than just insisting on calling it free software and GNU slash Linux and stuff. And that, again, all comes from Stallman. And if he would just bugger off and let some young people have a say and and have some influence over things, it would be in a much better position. So he definitely does right, Drew, to say, number one, get rid of Stallman. It's time for him to go and, and live on a farm somewhere. Is this the same farm as Upset 8, or what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, the same farm that my dog went to live on when I was little. Yours too? Yeah, no, but it, mine genuinely did, I think. <laughs> no, but it is time that he just retired and just did his own thing, and, you know, his own thing not being the FSF. The FSF is too important historically. It is totally irrelevant now. Graeme, you alluded to it, but that, that is the situation. The FSF is totally irrelevant, but it shouldn't be. And I've never been able to articulate in the way that Drew has with this post how to fix it. And so I've always just dismissed the FSF. But I do, having read this, genuinely believe that it could be fixed. And you mentioned, actually, a younger generation coming in. And I think that's key to this. Regardless, I mean, Richard Stallman, I think, is more than anything a product of his times and the circumstances that he found himself in and how he adapted and succeeded in those times under those circumstances. And he did a lot of good at the time. But times are completely different. Things have changed dramatically. And it's almost independent of how you may feel about free software and the GPL and everything that was done before, it has an obligation to change with the times regardless of the original mission. And it just absolutely has not. It's not done anything. The thing is that the whole industry has changed two or three times since Torman's day. Mm, Yeah. And he's still several generations back because you've got things changing now. And I'm loathe to bring it up because it will set fail him off so i don't know i'm gonna have to you just mute me yeah i'm gonna mute you here but can you imagine stallman's take on the whole ai thing it would make failing look progressive on it i don't know i think i give him a run for his money i wouldn't be able to pick my toe cheese quite as spectacularly but <laughs> i mean the thing is we we know things go in cycles i do wonder if we're going to end up back in a similar environment where you know they took all of his stuff away from him at mit and that's why he was raging about it a lot of stuff is going to the cloud is getting locked up in the cloud and you know someone else's computer and, you know, are we going to end up in a point where a similar type scenario is there and they're just going to be waltzing and going, boom, we got this. 
Well, I don't think it's going to be the FSF that does that. It's going to be someone else. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I, I just, I don't like non-copyleft licenses because I think that's where, that's allowed us to get where we are today. And I think it's far too easy to dismiss that and wrap it around sort of a, oh, Stallman's a big issue and I don't like him. Therefore, I don't like the GPL because I think a lot of that goes on. I think a lot of the permissive licenses have only been a case because the way things like GitHub phrased it when you were picking your license, things like that. It's very easy to sort of change the metrics on things. But I mean, I think we we wouldn't be in a Linux community as strong a position if we were to use, say, the likes of a BSD license. And I think that is genuinely the case that the agreement is you do work, we all benefit from it. You don't get to lock it back up again. And if we all started going down the permissive license route, I think we just end up in that sort of situation. And I think it'd be a shame that that gets lost and wrapped up in hatred of Stallman and the you know annoyance with the FSF. Yeah, but my point was that if the FSF had been more pragmatic, people wouldn't have felt so needy of going down the MIT route. They would have looked at the FSF licenses kinder rather than thinking of the, the zealotry associated with them. And I think that's very much how younger people, younger developers feel. They, they kind of associate the FSF with the GPL and the GPL with a kind of hippie movement that doesn't let them do what they want with their code. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and it was theirs to lose. They, I think they've done a terrible job at doing it, and I, I wouldn't stick up for them because I think, yes, it's great that it's there, and some of the stuff they have done has been good, but you're right. It's, it's a complete own goal sort of way of dealing with things. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop-down at checkout, and you can select late-night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Let's do some discoveries then. Failing, what is rough? Rough is very simple, but a linter for Python and a, a flake check and things like that. So if you're writing Python and you write it poorly, i.e. me, you don't have the right spacings or the way you're maybe being lazy and importing a bunch of stuff on a line. This thing goes through and tells you where your code is non-compliant as such, or even where you have errors and there's actual bugs in your code where you, you know, you've run two words together or something like that. There is one already. Uh, well, there's probably many. The likes of Pylint would be one of them. Flake would be another one that I've used quite a bit. And they are fine. And I don't have crazy projects that they, I sit there and go, geez, you know, I might as well go make a cup of tea while this is running. But I imagine some people there are. And some people rewrote Rough, which is a Rust implementation of a Python linting sort of type checking tool. And it runs amazingly quick. And they have some stats there, which I can't remember what they are right now, but it certainly ripped through the entire Python code base in seconds literally like one or two seconds compared to 
15 to 30. I mean, that doesn't sound like much, but if you're doing this all the time in a continuous integration system, it probably actually does make a sense to have it. And uh, their goal is to increase the availability and quality of Python tools. And I'm all for that. That's great. And I wish them luck. It claims to be orders of magnitude faster than the next fastest one, which is Autoflake massively faster than Pylint, which I think is the one that I'm using at the moment, and perhaps not relevant to failing, but certainly relevant to me, is that there is an integration with VS Code. So you don't have to stick with the VS Code default. You can use Rough if you want to. So I'm going to go and check that out. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of tie-ins with things like LSP Project, which Kate would say use, which is that sort of language server protocol, Mm. which is quite cool because... It allows you to, if you're the writer of one of these tools, write a tool that is generic enough that can tie into many editors, but also allow editors to make use of very many tools that are out there and available that they may not even know about yet, which is quite good. It's nice to see it in use in very important Python projects like Pandas and SciPy. In the data science community, those are critical libraries that need to be compiled and built as quickly as possible, uh, need to be accurate, and so they need a very good way of checking the accuracy of their code. And so if they're picking up rough, I think that says to me that it's a very good, very important project. Yeah. And I mean, let's see where they go with this because they're going to bring out some more. So, you know, fingers crossed. It's great to see the whole ecosystem sort of do well out of it all. I mean, honestly, if I'm using PyLint or this, I'm not really seeing much of a difference, to be quite honest. But if you've got a big project, this could make a real difference, I'd say. Graham, IEM plugin suite. Yeah. So I'm revisiting the audio geekiness world here revisiting what (laughs) i haven't done it for a while when have you not been there (laughs) (laughs) this is a remarkable set of plugins for a few things the iem is the institute of electronic music and and acoustics which i think is um it's it's like an academic institution in switzerland i think i'm doing that from memory and this is where lots of performers and creative people get together to master their instruments, but also work on software and do really geeky stuff with software. And then because of the way that the Institute is funded, they release it all as open source. It's the custodian of the Pure Data Project, for example. And one of their obsessions as an institute is psychoacoustics, room acoustics and surround sound. And the reason why I'm saying that is that this IEM plugin suite is a load of audio effects for dealing with a a specific encoding of surround sound called ambisonics. Are you still with me? (laughs) Can we like put a helicopter going around us in surround sound? I can't do it in this podcast because it's mono. But ambisonics actually encodes three-dimensional 360 degree date audio information into a stereo signal. Firstly, you encode the audio. You can take a mono or stereo source into this ambisonics position. Then you can place it anywhere in the field. You can even give it direction. So the sound is traveling in a direction. And I mean that at the listener or not at the listener. And then you put it into like, a. there's a thing called a room encoder, which basically takes this source and then puts you in the listening environment and then simulates the effects of listening to this source in a room. And so you can move it left and right, and you can move it up and down. And it sounds amazing. And you can listen to it yourself because there's a decoder, there's various decoders. There's a binaural decoder, which if you listen on headphones, it simulates the effect of listening to a sound with your head in the way. Um, they're quite popular on YouTube for ASMR videos. So it's a really 
surround sound is usually quite an expensive pro market to get involved with and all of this stuff is open source there's like 23 plugins that do these weird esoteric processes on surround sound data and ambisonics is really cool because it's not like you might be used to in surround sound in the cinema where data is encoded for a specific speaker in ambisonics the surround information is actually a three-dimensional location and direction inside a 3D space and that remains encoded in the audio until it's finally decoded and then written to the track or exported as an audio file. I know that sounds horribly complicated. I'll try and put an audio demo up by the time this podcast goes up so you can at least hear the effects of the 3D sound and you can drop these plugins into whatever your favourite host is and play around with it yourself. And it's great even for vocals and for simple percussive sounds. It's a really cool kind of experimental test bed. Do you remember we had OpenGL? Oh, well, we still obviously have OpenGL. I don't know whether it's still a thing, but we had OpenAL. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember this from the old Tom Clancy games, which was dating myself terribly to the 90s. And they had this thing where you could, like, run into, like, a bathroom-tiled toilet and open fire MP5, and you get that whole reflection of sound back off tile effect and stuff i I, is this like an open sort of version that even though that was open al2 i don't know if it's uh yeah i mean that room encoder plugin does that you can set the size of the room you can set the height of the room you can set the position of where the audio is coming from for every single channel that you feed into it and you can set your listening position and then you can change the characteristics of the room and that will create the room characteristics for you but mostly It's about once you've got all of these sources, you can't treat them as normal audio. You can't put them through a normal compressor like you would in an audio stream. But there's an ambisonics compressor in this suite and there's a delay for delaying different parts of the the signal in this 3D space. And there's an equaliser. So it's it's everything you need for dealing with 3D sound. And then you can do what you want with how you actually work with it inside that. It's quite creative, but also very practical if you want to experiment. This sounds an awful lot like Dolby Atmos. Is it basically just an open source version of that? Well, Ambisonics has been around apparently since the 70s. I read the Wikipedia page for the podcast, so I'm no expert. And it was created in the UK as an experimental kind of format. But it's open source. And I think that's what's key. And that's why this um, the Institute is using it. But also, it's one of the few that keeps all those separate bits inside the 3D space and also in a normal audio feed so you can use it with any normal thing. And yeah, Atmos is incredibly proprietary and incredibly expensive if you want to play with it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux.
Will, your discovery is LNL Telegram bot. And uh, the person who wrote this is obviously a genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not quite as uh, rock and roll as Graham's find, but useful nonetheless. Uh, What we tend to do to gather news for the podcast, well, until this week anyway, is do uh, bugger all and then let Joe do all the hard work and we would turn up and read it and try and comment on it. And rightfully so, Joe has asked us to put a bit more um, discoveries and, and finds into the docs where we can find them and talk about them and have a little bit more variety in the show. But the problem we had is posting a whole load of links into a Telegram channel loses a lot of context. They get lost in the sea of GIFs and um, you know other random jokes. Hard work, I think, is what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we were looking for a way to try and bring a bit of organization to the collection of links that we were posting. So I created a spreadsheet in Google Docs and then attached a Google app script to it, which hosts itself as a web app. So it just provides a URL that you can get and post to and then register a Telegram bot and tell it, that bot, the, the Telegram bot, that its webhook address is the URL of the hosted app script. And so now in a Telegram channel, you can run slash whatever you want and Telegram will interpret that as a command, send it to the bot. The bot will post the message that you sent with the slash command to the web URL. The web URL will receive that post, which is a JSON object, unpack it, and in there is who sent the message, what channel it was sent in, what the text of the message itself was, split the text up, extract the URL, and then with a couple of commands, append it to the end of a spreadsheet. So now what we've got, is a Google Doc spreadsheet with the time at which this link was added, who added it, and the URL link itself. So now we've got a nice ordered list of potential news items that we can review, copy and paste into the main doc, and we don't have to go hunting through the Telegram channel to look for them. Now, a lot of people will be saying, why couldn't you have used proper open technologies for this? Why did you have to use Telegram, which is proprietary, and Google Docs, which is proprietary? And what's this Google App Scripts nonsense? That sounds proprietary and horrible as well. I mean, it's a fair point. And my defense would be, well, I can't be asked to do a server. I can't be asked to be responsible for an Apache server or an Nginx and, or even, you know, a, a simple Python server receiving HTTP posts. It's connected to the internet. It's got to be hooked up to Telegram because that's where we communicate. We use Google Docs already to organize ourselves or try and organize ourselves. And this is a a free option, which is pretty much JavaScript. And we don't have to maintain any sort of infrastructure whatsoever. And the script is scoped such that it can only ever talk to that single spreadsheet. So it's relatively secure. It can't just go off and look through all of your other Google Docs documents. We don't have to maintain it. It's backed by Google. So you'd have to hope that it's reliable and pretty secure. And we don't have to look after it. It will just sit there and tick away on its own. So, you know, as far as level of effort goes, this seemed to be the the right balance. And the beauty is, for me, who doesn't have Google apps on his phone and would like uh, generally read stuff, let's just put it this way, on the jacks, this is great for me to be able to send show notes in without having to do anything else. It's fantastic. Yeah, this is a pragmatic solution to a problem that we had, which was that we wanted a way to organize the Telegram stuff. So now if something is for consideration for the show, 
it gets sent to the spreadsheet via this bot. And it means that we don't have to change our workflow at all, pretty much. Just all we have to do is remember to put the slash news command in front of our links when we post them. Let's just put this in perspective. We have in our group 1,854 photos, 61 videos, 87 (laughs) files, 56 audio files, 4,152 shared links, 37 voice messages, and 1,049 GIFs. So uh, (laughs) you can imagine it's quite hard to find what we're actually looking for there. How many Alan Partridge references? (laughs) Every single one of those voice messages is me. Yes. Because young people send voice messages, you know. And I'm down with the young people. Yeah, sure you are. <laughs> Granddad. <laughs> but you've open sourced this, Will, complete with all the keys and everything, so everyone can uh, put links in our spreadsheet. Well, you did make me think then, and I have just looked at it, and I think <laughs> I commented them all out. I just don't go looking through the history of it. I checked that too. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I have one question, though. See the valid user IDs in yeah. that array. What IDs are they? Are they the Telegram user IDs, or are they the Google Docs IDs? They're your Telegram user ID. Okay. How do you get that? You go to the web app rather than the desktop app, and you click on yourself, and it appears in the URL. Interesting. Because I've written a bot that pings me about airplanes flying overhead, but that was just for me into a channel, and it just spat text out. I never had to be worried about sending commands to it, whereas (laughs) this could go badly wrong. But, yeah, you say I've open-sourced it. I mean... I've published the script, all all hundred lines of it. I think it's pretty easy to extend. So if if we come across uh, new ideas and things we'd like it to do, it should be pretty easy to extend it. But uh, yeah, if anyone wants to pick it up, give it a go and um, come up with a new version, we'll be happy to take a look. One feature request I've got is, could we have it so that there's one command to just put stuff into a dump of just anything we find, and then another command for the more refined dump of these are the things that we actually might want to talk about yeah that would be really easy to do that i do wonder about the the user experience of doing that like we have to remember the difference between the two slash commands but that's probably Mm. not too much to to worry about if we make them different enough you'd expect we could have a choice between two things we might manage but (laughs) i don't know (laughs) because you also implement a help because uh (laughs) there is a help already actually oh fucking hell okay right i apologize okay is there a man page for this more or less read the code the the code is uh is is self-documenting i was waiting for that (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's see if you can understand what it does in five years All right, I've got a discovery that is AGPL3, so Phelim cannot complain at all about it, and I'm going to mute his mic starting from now. (laughs) Fucking can. (laughs) This is called Upscale. U-P-S-C-A-Y-L, Upscale. And uh, it takes photos and upscales them using AI magic. Perfectly. (laughs) Did you use this on that picture I sent you yesterday? Yes, yes, I did. That was shite. No, the smoke looked much better after I'd upscaled it. This was a, 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 a landscape, a beautiful landscape of North Dublin that you sent us. I think you should include both images, one from my <laughs> un-AI obtainable phone, and then one from your horrific butchering of my artistic picture. And I think you should include them. Well, I did upscale it twice, just for maximum effect. Oh, here we go. Oh, I did it twice. I didn't know it was... I was holding it wrong. Uh-oh. 
Well, this needs a Vulkan-compatible GPU. It says many CPU iGPUs do not work, but no harm in trying. But thankfully, there's a DMG for the M1 Mac, so that's what I used it on, because I know that that uh, is pretty good with the old AI stuff. So it's double annoying to fail him. So just to spite him, you should use this to upscale old images. If you too want images that look like they've been shot through the bottom of a pint glass, you can use this too. Bollocks. It looks great. Look at the road. In fact, everybody look at the road because you'll have put this on a website and I'm going to check to make sure it's the right fucking version. It looks terrible. It looks like you've blurred the whole thing out. It's terrible. Well, like I said, you're muted, so no one's heard any of your complaining. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like those amazing night photos that you took before you didn't know that AI was ruining all those photos. Oh, look, it's the moon. Oh, no, actually, it's a 60-watt light bulb at the end of the garden. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, Linux Downtime, and Linux Matters. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. Brian says, I have a find that your listeners might be interested in. It's a project of mine called Shotwell Site Generator. There's the GNOME-based Shotwell Photo Manager under Linux, And this generates a read-only, static HTML site of your photo and video library that you can host yourself. The site is mobile-friendly, and you can view it on a thumb drive on other operating systems without the need for any servers. There's some screenshots of a sample site at the following link, which we'll put in the show notes. And it looks quite basic, but it certainly does the job by the looks of it. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of... uh something that I created 20 years ago <laughs> that created a static HTML site. Hey, um, sorry, let me put ye oldie music in background. <laughs> <laughs> I often think about how useful it still is to be able to share a static site with people just exactly like Brian's done by uh, putting a load of photos and a load of HTML with a load of links and, you know, putting it somewhere or putting it on a bit of on a USB stick. It's really useful. Yeah, and with the advent of object storage now being relatively cheap, where you don't even have to worry about the Nginx or Apache server, you just chuck the files up there and not worry about it, yeah. Mm. That static site is so much more for, even if you're running it yourself, is the fact that it's far more secure because there's no mm. code overflow shite to going on with. Yeah, there's no PHP, no database, any of that, yeah. I think there's something to be said for data preservation in sites such as this that are relatively straightforward HTML, don't rely on masses of JavaScript and CSS, because you can upload these to, for example, S3, 
And some sort of service like this will be around forever. You may have to move it from provider to provider. But HTML may go out of fashion in the future, but it's so straightforward, so understandable that you'll always be able to sort of view these on some device somewhere for, you know, I don't know, let's say 50, 60, 100 years to come. So I think there's it's, it's good that, that there are packages that will produce something straightforward without all of the bells and whistles that you can just rely on. Uh, but will it work on Apple's new headset thing, which has probably come out by the time this is published? I can only hope that that hard drive that you sent back that has this copy of Late Night Linux on it, that someone finds that 100 years from now and tries to open a web page. <laughs> <laughs> so this is interesting because the program that I wrote 20 years ago is called K-Album. And when it generated its HTML, there was a little tag at the bottom that said generated by K-Album. And I haven't done it for years. You can Google for generated by K-Album. And there are still loads of sites that are publishing photos from generated by K albums. So it does last. That what I'm saying is it is a good idea. Some the oldest I can find is two thousand and five. But there's a few pages of you know, and so fifteen years later, sixteen, seventeen years later, and hopefully it'll be the same for Shotwell site generator. Right, well we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about. But until then, I've been John. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>